So I'm going to be reading from Mark 9, um, starting at verse 30 and going through 50. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourself on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little, a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now when John answered to him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon after speak evil of me. For he who, who is not against us is, is on our side. For whoever gives, a, gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, or surely I say to you, he will, be by no means, he, by, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter, the, into, the, enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Thank you, Matt. This has been the word of the Lord. Um, it is this passage that we come to in Mark 9. We're going through the Gospel of Mark together on Sundays. And um, the last, to give you an update, the last few weeks we saw Christ has entered into his path toward the cross. You, you could divide the life of Christ into three parts. Um, the first being obscurity, the second popularity, 
and the third one, adversity. And now he's going into that adversity and toward the cross, and this is the third time in our passage today that he emphasizes and tells his disciples about the fact that he's going to go to a cross, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And we saw that on the, um, two weeks ago, we looked at the transfiguration when Jesus took Ch James, John, and Peter to the top of the mountain. They saw him for who he was in all of his glory. He had intrinsic glory shining from himself. And then um, he reiterated that reality that he was going to be going to die, to suffer and die and rise again. Um, last week, we, taught, we looked at the gospel illustrated. So he um, came into conflict with, a well, you could say a, a young boy with a demon right upon returning from that mountain, reminded us of Moses <clears throat> coming off the Mount Sinai where he saw the effects of sin among the people as they danced around this golden calf. Jesus came down and saw the effects of Satan in this young boy's life. And he, the disciples were not believing enough that that would happen, that Jesus, in the name of Jesus, this boy could be healed. <clears throat> Jesus healed him in a very interesting way we looked at last week, where the boy actually died or looked like he was dead when the demon came out of him, and then Jesus, by his hand, picked him up and rose, lifted him from the dead. So he was doing that as an illustration. When he goes in to fight with Satan, on the cross, he's going to die, and by the power of God, be raised again. We're coming again to this third iteration of Jesus explaining that he's going to die on a cross and suffer and then rise again, and still, his disciples don't understand what he's talking about. And you'll remember, maybe, I hope you do, a few weeks ago, we talked about good news for the slow learners, and that just keeps getting illustrated every week that these disciples are not understanding important things. Today's passage is, has so much application um, that we're going to, like as Joe said, we're going to do extra songs after the sermon to reflect ourselves on how God is forming us through that gospel. And so... <clears throat> We have in two parts the passage from verse 30 to 50. The first part, you could call it gospel doctrine. Thanks. Yeah, I, I ran a half marathon this morning. Yeah, I, 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 did, yeah, I finished it in um, two and a half hours, and Joe and Sydney, uh, Jillian and I, two and a half hours, Joe and Sydney in two hours. It took poor Kent three and a half hours to finish a full marathon. But uh, he was right behind us. Anyway, that has nothing to do with our passage today. But it might have to do with why I am not breathing well or if you hear me groan while I'm preaching. <laughs> I apologize for that. So, um, yeah. Our passage today, uh, this is giving a preacher water is actually in our scripture that Matt read. So I should drink it. All right. So our passage today is, is very well broken down for us in two parts. The first part, verse 30 and 31, you could call it gospel doctrine. What is the gospel? That Christ died, suffered and died for us in our place and rose again. This is the gospel and this is what he said. If you look at it in verse 
30, he says he departed thence, passed into Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. So this is also a theme we're seeing. Jesus is constantly trying, and during the second half of his ministry, the first half being where, where he was very popular, the second going to the cross, he's always trying to get away from the crowds. And verse 31 tells us why. For he taught his disciples. So he was trying to teach he was trying to get the gospel, this truth of the gospel, deeper into the lives of these 12. And so he took them aside and away from others. And the rest of our passage, after he announces to them again in verse 31, this gospel doctrine, and in verse 32, they don't understand. It says, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And then from verse 33 to verse 50, verse 50 Jesus is teaching them the application of that doctrine in their lives, of that gospel in their lives. And you could call that gospel culture because he's talking to them not just about their individual application of the gospel, but the, the disciples as a whole, how they were supposed to understand the consequence of that gospel and how they related to one another. And we could call that gospel culture. So you have gospel doctrine and then gospel culture. So what is gospel doctrine? Gospel doctrine is the great truths of what Jesus accomplished by his suffering, death, and resurrection. And there's so many wonderful things to learn. Some of them are really big theological words. Propitiation and um, reconciliation and... Uh, substitutionary atonement. Some wonderful things that Jesus accomplished by the one obedient act of dying on the cross according to the will of the Father, the Father placing on the Son all of the sins of man and his resurrection to defeat the powers of sin and Satan and, and all of its consequences. This is gospel doctrine. And we are to believe this. But then gospel culture... What is that? Culture is a tone. It's a feeling, it's a, an experience or a vibe. You could say that you sense when you go somewhere. It's created by the shared habits of a group. Some people describe culture as cold cultures or warm cultures. What are they saying? Like you go, we lived in a warm culture for 10 years in North Africa and we moved to a cold culture in Northern Europe, in Germany. And we could say that that explanation of warm and cold is not just about the weather, though that's a reality, but it's about the feeling that you get among a group of people, whether it's cold or warm. Um, so that's what culture is a very hard to grasp thing that you just feel when you're with people. And the culture created in a church by individual disciples who allow these truths to radically rearrange their values, attitudes, and treatment of one another is what makes gospel culture in a church, or it's what should make gospel culture in a church. Um, so Jesus did not leave gospel doctrine to his disciples just sort of hanging in the air as a mere abstraction. He presses the gospel truth into every area of their lives and their thinking. And he talks about it with them, and he intentionally draws away from the crowd to deepen the gospel in their lives. The reality is that we can be living 
a denial of gospel truth that we say that we believe. That is to say that sometimes, you know, in the normal Christian life, it takes time for the gospel culture to make a difference in our lives. But it's very possible that we completely miss the implications of the gospel in our lives and in our culture as a church. So I'll give you one illustration of this. If Alice will go to the next picture. Uh, I think all of us who know Jesus would agree with this saying, right? Jesus saves. This is gospel doctrine. And this particular picture is from a church in Alabama in the 1920s. And it's a glorious truth. In fact, you could say that all of the Bible, I've heard that all the Bible summarized in this way, God saves, two words. You could say God saves through Christ. God saves us through Christ. You could elaborate on that. But here, this phrase, Jesus saves, is verse 31, what Jesus was saying, what he is going to accomplish on his cross and in his resurrection. And this church in Alabama would believe and say this truth with enthusiasm. But if we zoom out from their gospel doctrine, I want to show you a picture for a second, one second, Alex, but I, I do want to say that this picture can be triggering, it can be shocking, it can, be, it can really bother us. In fact, it should really bother us. I've asked a few of you here today before I show this if it's okay to show this because it's so shocking and bothering. But Alex, if you'd show the next message, this is what is directly under that sign, Jesus saves. 30, 35 or so KKK members who, with their lives and actions, would very much deny the reality that the cross illustrates for our world. Alex, you can move on from the picture. So today, we're going to talk about cruciform culture. So cruciform means the form of the cross. So what is the culture that the cross should create in us? This is not just a Ku Klux Klan in the South problem. I use that illustration because it's so shocking and so bothersome to us. But it's not just a Ku Klux Klan problem. In fact, as offensive as that picture is, I, I was talking to Matt about this earlier today, and I, 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 I asked him a question that I laughed at as soon as I said it. Do you think this picture will be offensive? And I just thought, oh, of course, it's, it's an offensive picture. <laughs> Obviously, it's offensive. But the the... The, question, the thing that I want to drive home is the reason I want to be offended is because I want to imagine how offensive is it in my life that I would believe the gospel or say I believe the gospel and then not allow it to be applied. Resist God's application of that gospel or when a church in any way does not allow the gospel to get to the root of our habits and of our thoughts, of our racism, of our selfishness, of our hatred, of our uh, retribution, of all of the things that are anti-gospel. How offensive is that to our God, who by his gospel redeemed us? So, um, I mean, I can give a, an illustration that's closer to home for me. That, this one seems like it's far away, it's shocking, but I give you one that's closer to home. Just a few months ago, the church that I grew up in had an ugly split, and the people in it, uh, we were 
counseling well with a friend. I don't know if you call that counseling with a friend. We were hanging out with a friend, and um, she was one of the pastor's wives, and explaining to us with tears how people she had known for years treated her with hatred in their eyes because of a disagreement about some finer point of doctrine that they were having in the church that eventually split the church. They wouldn't look at her, wouldn't say hi to her. And what is this? This is a problem of culture in a church that's not fully shaped by the gospel. And so this is one that's, that's real for me, and there, may be, there will be ones that we as a church will come to and need to repent of and need to let the gospel form us. And there are some in your lives individually, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit and reflection after the, ser- after the sermon that we want to let the Lord doing us. I don't want it to be um, thought that this is just a problem in the South. This is a problem, or in the Old South, to be fair to them. This is a problem in my heart, right? And this is what Jesus is pulling us aside as disciples to teach us. And what is at stake here? Um, First of all, what is at stake is our own salvation. Not to say that if you do not apply the gospel well, you will somehow lose it, but that if you're not applying the gospel to every area of your life and you don't want that, it's a reality that you may actually not believe the gospel that you say you do. And so this is an extremely important idea. Also, the faith in the gospel by those watching us is at stake. And I don't mean just our city. I mean our children who are growing up in this culture that we're creating in this church? Will they love and believe the gospel because in our homes, and we we sang this song, in my life, Lord, be glorified. In our homes, Lord, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified. Will they love this message of Jesus because of the good culture it created amongst us? So uh, the survival and thriving of the church and the, the saving of our city and of our own children is what's at stake. So this is an extremely important topic. The gospel should change our collective behavior, not just our private behavior. And so as Jesus explained the gospel to them, and he says this in verse 31, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. That's that's the gospel. He explains it. But then look in verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that he disputed? I, I have to give you a caveat. I forgot my Bible. The preacher forgot his Bible. And so I borrowed from my daughter, and I looked right before I came up here, and it's King James. So I'm going to try to update it in my mind, but it might sound different than what you're holding, I'll, I'll do my best. So what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? And they held their peace, for by the way, they disputed among themselves who should be called the greatest. So what is this? This is an issue between each other. Does the gospel make a difference in our relationships, or is it just something that we believe? Or that we, is it just a, what you could say, um, a doctrinal statement that we hold, or a creed that we repeat. So professing sound doctrine is essential, but it is not in any way sufficient. So we need to teach 
true doctrine, but it is not sufficient that we know doctrine, gospel doctrine. It is absolutely essential that we let it be applied around, in us and between us. So why is this so hard then for these disciples who have walked with Jesus for these years? Maybe it's been two, going on three years by this time. Why is it so hard? And why is it still so hard for us? The stories that I described from my church I grew up in or the picture that we saw. or Why are we so resistant to letting the gospel be applied to us? Um, well, there's a lot of theological answers to that, but I think we force new thoughts into old boxes and we maintain the same habits and, and ways of thinking. And we separate the gospel from our actions. We separate Sunday from Monday to Saturday. So we have to allow the gospel, as the neurologist would say, or psychologist, to cut new neurological pathways. That means the, the habits we previously had that we did because they were comfortable to us and we, we had these actions that we did, we have to allow new gospel pathways in our brain and in our way of thinking. And that's an amazing thing to think that the gospel can really change and rearrange our thinking and our brain. It is possible to be a real scripture person, to love the Bible and read it every day and talk about it all the time, yet not be coming to Jesus. The Pharisees did it. So we could, we could be well known as somebody who loves God's word, but the question is, is it applying itself deeply and creating repentance in our lives from our old paths, our old ways of doing things. So, uh, Jesus is going to um, do, between verse 33 and 50, he's going to explain seven, I think, ways that the gospel can create a new culture among us. Um, and this was hard for me as a preacher who likes three points to think about, as David Michael knows I like three points, how, how I can fit this into three points. And I decided to stop trying to fit it into three points, uh, even though if you have an ESV, it divides it into three groupings. And I don't know how they got those divisions, and you'll make your own decision. But I think there's seven things that Jesus was addressing here about the culture and how the gospel impacts it. Um, You'll notice that the, this, this was, uh, the commentators say, an early uh, memorized passage by the church as they memorized in church what, it was, you know, what, what Jesus' teachings were. And Mark doesn't give us a lot of teachings of Jesus like Matthew does. So a lot of these teachings you'll recognize from the Gospel of Matthew are inside of a larger set of teaching, like the, the Sermon on the Mount or other sermons that Jesus would preach. And he, and, but Mark just inserts shorter phrases one at a time in here uh, that don't seem to have any context. And he attaches them by word association, which could have been a memorization tool. So, for example, um, toward the end, he talks about salt in verse 49. Um, and in that sense, he's talking about salt in one way that it's suffering. And then in verse 50, he talks about salt as a metaphor for how we are preser a, preserving, a preserving factor for the world. So salt only means 
that it's the same word in verse 49 and 50, but it doesn't have the same meaning. It was just a tool for people to help them to remember, okay, after this truth, then I, I memorize that, and I'm going to say the other one. It has the word salt in it. Other times we can see this in verse 43 through 47, he says it would be better. And in verse 42, he also says it would be better. But the topics of those two are very different. So uh, fire, for example, is mentioned in verse 48, talking about the fire of punishment. And verse 49, fire is mentioned, and that's the fire of cleansing of the Christian through persecution. So these are, just so you give you an idea of what Mark is doing here, he is giving Christians uh, a useful tool to mem for memorization for the ways of Jesus. Um, but it's not, that, that will help us to not try to understand what, how these things fit together. I don't think that any of these seven things necessarily relate to one another. They all relate back to what he said in verse 31 about the gospel, about the cross. So in each one, we're going to go through them quickly. In each one, he's going to apply the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus in some way to the culture of the disciples among each other. And this was so, I'm so glad that Jesus is a disciple-making Savior because this is what gives us the teaching of the church, and we can disciple each other. We can teach each other because Jesus taught and applied the, the gospel. So maybe this is not a habit you have, so I would ask you this question. How often do you relate the suffering, death on the cross, and resurrection of Jesus to the way you act on a daily basis? How often do you? Is it a daily thing? Is, I would say, as a Christian, it should be an everything that you do. So if you're not accustomed to know how to do this or how that works, then Jesus is going to explain it here in verse 33 through 35. And we'll look at these seven marks of a cruciform culture, or the seven marks of a culture that is formed around, uh, has the form of the cross, basically. So, first one. Jesus answers in verse 33 through verse 35. We could call this cruciform leadership. In verse 33 through 35, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. In verse 35, it says, he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if any man desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. So, what does cruciform culture or cruciform leadership look like? See, our old paths, the old ways that our minds were used to doing things, was power struggles and a race to the top. And in the church, none of us who've been in church for very long are unaccustomed to power struggles in the church. Jesus is saying the cruciform style of leadership is this, service struggles, meaning that we want to outdo one another in serving each other, not outdo one another in dominating and in having power. Instead of a race to the top, it's a race to the bottom. Why? What about the cross makes that, and the, the gospel creates that? Well, Jesus, though being God, came down as a servant. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve. And he's going to tell us that in Mark 10, just in a couple weeks as we go, continue to go. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. So that he sacrificed himself is 
the new paradigm for leadership that Christians should have. Men in our homes, we should have this attitude of sacrificing ourselves for our wives and for our children. We should be known as dads in the family, as the first one to uh, give a portion of the best portion of food to somebody else, as the first one to give up our rights for the rights of, of others in our family. This is the cruciform leadership. Um, there's many applications for this. Uh, in particular, he was talking about in the church among the disciples, that the he who wants to be first in the culture of Jesus should be last. He goes on in verse 26 through 37 and talks about a cruciform status. Look at that passage with me, if you will. And he took a child, and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whosoever shall receive one of, those, of such children in my name receives me, and whoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. Possibly the connection between verse 35 and verse 36 um, is that he uses the word servant at the end of verse 35, and in Aramaic, which was the language Jesus spoke, the word child is the same word. So you're like, how did he jump from that to child? Well, it's, he's connecting the words. Mark is just connecting the words to help us to memorize it. And our old paths, what were our old ways of acting? So in our old ways of acting, I give myself to people who can give back who have some value and power to benefit me. People that I enjoy and that I'm the same with. Same age, same interests. But Jesus said that you should welcome a child. So he brought a child, set him in the middle of them, and he says, whosoever shall receive, and if you were in the ESV, it, might say, it would say welcome. So whoever welcomes a, a child into his midst is as if he were welcoming Jesus. And you do it in his name, he says, in my name. So what is the status? You know, in, in our old system, children have a low status, not important. Um, they should be quiet and they should stay out of the way. They should not come, and this was actually in the context that Matthew gives us, a child comes and the disciples tell the child to leave. You're bothering the master. This is adult stuff. And Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So now he's saying that if you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. So what does this mean? It means that in the cruciform status in a church and among ourselves ought to be to move toward the children, the youngest, the weakest, and the least powerful among us to welcome them in the name of Jesus. And not just children. Children were one status that maybe were on the bottom, but there's other people in our congregation who you maybe wouldn't want to hang out with naturally. They don't share the same age with you. They don't share the same interests. And maybe they have no position of power to help, for, to help push your career along or your uh, fun or whatever it is. So what does this have to do with the cross? How is it that the cross informs this? Well, Jesus, who surely uh, did not count it to be an honor to hang out with us, came from his throne in heaven to weak, small children like ourselves. 
and he gave every single one the most glorious value, which is the cost of his blood, of his life. So when we serve the disabled, or when we serve a child, or when we serve someone that's not like us, or that we would not naturally hang out with, and we welcome them, what we are doing is pronouncing that the value of that person is no less, of every individual, is no less than the price that God paid for them, which is the blood of Jesus. And so status among ourselves is not, uh, we could easily in our city mention refugees um, because they come from their high status where they came from, many of them who were leaders or in their communities, and they come to our city and take the lowest of status, absolutely nothing when they arrive. They have nothing, and they offer nothing in forms of education. Their education is not accepted, whatever it was. We, Jillian and I, and many of you, know professionals who served as doctors and dentists in their country, and they come here. They can't practice that, and they have to take uh, the lowest wage paying job. So what does that mean for status formed by the cross? It means that we welcome them. Um, some, some of you, for example, that uh, have, have, well, I, I, was, we were I was talking to teenagers the other day, and we want to get them involved with children's ministry. Why, why do we want them to be involved with children's ministry? We want to teach them now they wouldn't hang out with kids. You know, a 16-year-old or a 19-year-old doesn't typically hang out with a 10-year-old. But in church, we should teach our teenagers to welcome children, children and to value children, not because of what they do for the teenager, but because of what the Christ did for us. And so that's just one application in our community. The third thing that Jesus moves to verse 38 through 40. So let's read that together. And John answered him saying, Master, we, have, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him because he followed not us. And Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is for us. So, this is a cruciform attitude toward other Christ followers. So our old paths was to form parties, political and otherwise, and if you're not in, then you're out. And we look for reasons to exclude people into other groups, and that makes us more important. Um, it's our way that's the best, and everybody else is not. But the cruciform culture says, I will look for reasons to encourage and bless my brothers, even if they're in other churches that don't worship like me or don't hold to the same very specific doctrines and speci uh, you know, that, that I do, but they're serving the same Savior. I'm not talking about heretical groups who deny the um, sonship of Christ, you know, the deity of Christ or the cross. I'm talking about brothers who are in the name of Jesus and believe this, these things about Jesus. So what does the cross, how does the cross have that application? Well, in his resurrection, Jesus became the Lord over all. All loyalty and power is now centralized in Jesus, not in any church with any worldly hub, whether it's Alexandria, Egypt, or Nashville, Tennessee, or Rome, or any other place, that 
that Jesus was risen, and in his resurrection, he became, he was given all authority by the Father. So because of that, if there's someone serving Jesus, and they're serving Jesus according to who Jesus was and is, then we, in our culture, encourage and say, do more for Jesus, and we encourage them. Um, Verse 41 through 42, let's keep going. So verse 41 says, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. So this is cruciform honor, honoring uh, those who are preaching the gospel. So our old paths look like this. We will pay a lot to go to be entertained. We will honor people who make our movies and play our music and win our games, right? But in verse 41, Jesus is saying that there is a reward for those who give a drink of water in the name of Jesus to you, and he's speaking to his disciples. This was probably given in the context of him sending the disciples on mission. If you remember, he sent out 70 to go into all the towns. And... um, and then he says this in verse 41, 42, which we read. It's, it doesn't seem connected, but I think it's connected. You make your own decision. He says, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones. That word little ones um, is the word uh, micros, and, and which we could understand why that would be uh, little ones. And I think he's referring back to those who are going to share the gospel because he's contrasting giving them water with offending them or causing them to fall. That's another word. It's scandalizo is the word here for offend them or to make them descend, and it basically means to make a scandal out of them. It could be to make fun of them. It could be to make a, a, you know, a big joke about them in your town, and it's the opposite of encouraging them and helping them along. So honor in the church is that we honor those who are serving the Lord. We give great honor to those who preach the gospel, whether it's our friends that are taking it to other parts of the world or whether it's people that are doing that here. We identify with them. We receive them. We fall over ourselves competing to honor them. We encourage them on their way. Because the cross has become so high and lifted up to us that we see everything else in light of the cross. Now, Think about it. If you see today's football game, whoever your favorite team is, in light of the work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection, is it a very big deal? Obviously not a very big deal. Or your favorite music or whatever it is. And so uh, we honor those who are giving of themselves to serve the Lord by helping them along. Why? Because what does the gospel or the cross say about that that causes us to do that? Well, Christ did the greatest act in all the world on the cross and in his resurrection. All other acts of men decrease in brilliance in the light of Christ and his work. And so we see if you know Jesus and you love the gospel, then you know, you should, your, your children in your home should know that we regularly pray for and encourage those who are taking his gospel around the world. 
I think it would be quite a shame if our children in our homes knew how much we love a certain sports team, but don't feel a greater passion for people that are taking the gospel and ministering the word. That's what Jesus said, that there is, you will not lose your reward for that. So we honor um, the cross in our culture when we honor people who are preaching the cross. So verse, uh, the fifth thing, we could call this cruciform holiness. Look in verse 43 through 48. There's some repetition here, but he says, if your hand sins, better to cut it off than for your whole body to go to hell. And verse 42, he says, if your, or wait, I'm sorry, verse 45, if your foot offends you, do the same. And verse 47, if your eye offends you, do the same. Now, you'll, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll recognize this from the Sermon on the Mount. Mark puts it here. doesn't mean that it's not where it should be. It just means this was him trying to teach how the Gospel impacts us. Um, so what is he saying with this, this idea? First, I think that what he's saying here is that for those who follow Jesus, the culture, the attitude that we have towards sin is is that we hate it so much we would prefer to have that thing cut out of us at great pain and cost to ourselves than we would to keep living with it and risk hell because of it. So what he's saying is that our old paths are like this, that um, our biggest enemy is shame, and it's not so much the sin, but the shame of the sin that bothers us, so hide it, excuse it, and just don't talk about it. Uh, the cruciform culture says we hate sin so much that we, we're willing to go through such pain to be rid of it. We see it as the difference between heaven and hell. It's an eternal thing for us. So um, what does the cross say? What about the gospel tells us that this should be our attitude towards sin? Well, hell is a real place of eternal consequence. This is what Jesus is saying here. Where, where he explains hell to us. And Jesus entered into it for us with his death, and then he conquered it for us in his resurrection. So now sin is, is our eternal enemy that we fight, and we don't need to fear the consequences of it. And it is not a friend that we harbor. And we don't have any fear of shame among ourselves anymore because Jesus has redeemed all of us sinners when he went to hell for us and rose again. So what, is, what does this mean for us in our families and in our churches? It means that we don't hide sin among each other. We, even though it's painful, even though it feels like you're cutting my hand off when you point it out to me, that in my home I can let my kids do that to me because they know their dad wants more than anything to be holy, more than he wants for you to respect me, more than he wants for you to you know, uh, let's say, honor me, I want Jesus to be pleased with my life. So if you're telling me something true about myself, even though it cuts to the very depths of me, I want it because I hate it. It's my enemy. You're not my enemy who told me this, but sin is my enemy. And my holiness is my ultimate goal through Christ. This is how the cross forms our attitude toward holiness. Um, some people, and the whole New Testament, I think, and we could talk so long about this because the whole New Testament is about 
how the gospel plays out in churches and in individual lives. So uh, I have to stop. There's so much here that I'll, I'll have to stop my thoughts about who's, you know, Paul's words on all this. So sixth thing, cruciform expectations. Look in verse 49. We're almost to the end. He says, for everyone shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. That's weird. Isn't that weird? Like what in the world is he talking about? And, and here's what it is. The disciples understood the Old Covenant, and in the Old Covenant, the, the offerings that were brought to the temple had salt sprinkled on them. They were commanded by God to sprinkle salt, and that salt was a picture of something. Well, we understand through the New Testament that that salt was a picture of the suffering that the person who brings himself as a sacrifice to God will go through. So, uh, we read in Romans 12, Joe read for us in verse 2, verse 1, that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. What is the reality of that? That our expectation should be that we will suffer. Well, what is our old path? Our old path says life is about me and my enjoyment. Anything that causes me pain, I'm going to avoid that. But our cruciform culture says we will expect to all experience suffering for Christ because we are connected to him. We will rather rejoice in our sufferings because in our weakness his strength is made perfect. How does the gospel tell us that? Well, the cross is the symbol of the Christian. We follow the same path as our Savior, suffering for righteousness before our glorification. In the same way that our Savior went through the cross to, to the resurrection, he is holding on to us as we go through the suffering of this life for righteousness' sake, on our way to glorification. So we were not, will not be surprised by the salt of suffering that we are sprinkled with. Last thing, seventh thing, verse 50, he says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith will, you season, will it be salted or will, will it season the food that it's salting? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. This is a different use of the word salt this is talking about cruciform peace. He had just talked about cruciform expectations. Now he's talking about cruciform peace. That is that salt is that quality that Jesus said also during the Sermon on the Mount, is that quality of the Christian that makes him a preserving force in the world. So as we're in the world and we are saving the world through our existence in it, we are like salt. But if we have lost that thing that makes us salty, or that thing that makes us different in this world, and we are of no value. So he says, have peace among yourselves, and he ties this back to the beginning where they started arguing with one another about who is the greatest. So what is cruciform peace? Our old paths, when you get more than one person together, there is fighting, bickering, jealousy, covetousness, divisions. But in our cruciform culture, we strive above all else to be at peace with one another. We love peace more than we love being right or love being first. This has a lot of implications for marriage. This has a lot of implications for raising our children. Primary implications is for our church, that we should love peace more than being right about whatever, it, whatever thing that is. So what about the gospel tells us that? Well, God could have paid us with justice, but he reached down in Jesus making peace. And Joe read Ephesians 2 about peace 
that, of reconciliation that God accomplished on the cross for us. So what does that mean for each other? That means our main heart is that we would have peace between one. It ought to bother us so deeply when our brother is, we've sinned against him or he's sinned against us and I am not at peace with him. Jesus tells us this in other areas. We should go to him and we should, whatever we need to do to make peace in the church. Some Christians have this attitude towards their own children. They don't want to be estranged from their children or from their family. They want to get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but it doesn't bother them at all to be estranged from a brother in Christ because of some small difference that they have between each other. And a, cru a cruciform culture is not like that. It's one that loves peace above all else. So, the culture of the church, will it be a conducive place for our kids to grow in Christ here? To see how the, this is, I've mentioned seven things. I don't know how many things there are, maybe hundreds of ways that the gospel has implications in our lives. Mark gives us seven things, but they're not conclusive. Um, well, they're conclusive, but they're not comprehensive of everything that the gospel means. There is so much more. The gospel, the cross speaks about grace and humility and trust and confidence and so much more. So are you allowing the things you say you believe to rearrange the form of every attitude, reaction, and interaction that you have? Not only in this church, but in your marriage, with your children, among friends. Where might the lack of gospel application be so offensive to God in your life as you are offended, hopefully, by the view of these KKK members standing under the beautiful words of Jesus saves. This is not meant to make anybody feel bad. In fact, this is what Jesus does. He teaches us. He takes us aside and he teaches us how to let the gospel affect and get deeper. And it could be that you've lived decades not letting the gospel be applied to some area of your life and that's and that's and you're, you're weighing the, the sunk costs that you've already spent into creating this personality and that if you changed, it would look like weakness. Well, this is what this means to follow Jesus, to let the form of the cross put its imprint in our culture here in our church. We're going to sing a couple songs. Joe's going to come. As we do, I want to ask you, would you pray for uh, our church that our culture would be the form of the cross, that it would represent the gospel well, and that for you individually, that you would repent and that I would repent of the things about our life that do not properly uh, represent the gospel um, to those around me and in my relationships. Father, we thank you for your cross. It means so much more than just our salvation. It means uh, our sanctification. I pray that you would sanctify us together, Lord, in Jesus' name.